Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. Dr. Basil Sheriff is a plastic surgeon and director for the Center for Aesthetic Medicine at Mayo Clinic. He joins us today to talk about surgery, complex cases using 3D technology and surgery, how facial plastic surgery and ophthalmology coincide, and finally, even how to stay physically fit as a surgeon. Dr. Basil Sheriff is a plastic surgeon at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Sheriff is the practice chair of the Center for Aesthetic Medicine and Cosmetic Surgery at Mayo and has wide interests in surgery, including breast and body procedures, but really specializes in complex facial reconstruction and aesthetic surgery. Dr. Sheriff attended Harvard Medical School, then completed residency in oral and maxillofacial surgery at Mass General, plastic surgery residency at Montefiore in New York, and fellowship at MD Anderson. We're so happy to have you. Welcome, Dr. Sheriff. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to sit down and talk with you. We work together a lot, but I think there's so much you can talk about as a surgeon, and you've had a, a really fantastic journey as a surgeon, tons of training. So if it's okay, just, just kind of give us a little overview of who you are, where you come from, and what your surgical training journey has been. Thank you. Really uh, happy to be here with you, and, and, and great to have this forum. It's fantastic. I uh, grew up in Montreal and influenced by my siblings, to be honest with you, to go into dental school. We all had a interest in working with our hands, uh, drawings and painting since young age, all of us. And they went to dental school and I felt this was the path for me. In dental school, I realized, you know, I, I liked the technical aspects of it, but I had more interest in surgery. I started shadowing the maxillofacial surgeons at the time. During my dental school, I felt this was really more speaking to me in terms of interest and, and field. And applied for maxillofacial surgery and went to the Harvard program. And really, it was during that time that I got the exposure to plastic surgery. Now, as you can imagine, it was already a six years residency after a four-year dental school. And my family were kind of not keeping track of what I was really doing or my interests, but I really felt a great passion towards doing both bony and soft tissue procedures and aesthetic procedures as well. So I ended up going for the residency at the recommendation of the chair of the uh, plastic surgery program at the time, Dr. Jim May. And here I am. My microsurgery fellowship was also towards the end of my training. It was really never planned that way. Sort of one step led to the other. And grateful for the training. It was very long, but uh, grateful to have it. Very long. Yes, indeed. You've done two surgical residencies, which not many people can say. So bravo. Thank you. Yes, I'm sure you're tired. But no, that's outstanding. And I mean, really, you've had plastic surgery residency. So you've done comprehensive plastic surgery training from the entire body. But a lot of your emphasis has been on facial plastic surgery. And I, th I think that's your passion and your real love is facial plastics. Absolutely. The maxillofacial was really a good foundation. There's a lot of overlap, as you know. We had what we you know, called orthognathic conference that was every Wednesday at noon and literally for six years straight. So facial analysis, facial aesthetic analysis, bony analysis, and then really thinking about form and function the entire time. So I'm definitely drawn towards the face, but also feel the privilege as a plastic surgeon to be able to operate on other parts of the body as well. Yeah, and a lot of the cases that we interact with are trauma, 
facial fractures, you know, that's right up your alley, and orbital fractures, and then big facial reconstruction and aesthetic cases. I'd love to hear just your perspective on working with ophthalmology. You know, I think a lot of our listeners are comprehensive ophthalmologists on the community doing cataract surgery or, or regular ophthalmologists. Not all have a plastic surgery background, not are all oculoplastics, or even really have a lot of comfort with large facial reconstruction. So talk a little bit about how you view ophthalmology or the eye or your training. Like what should we know from your perspective? So maxillofacial and plastic residency, we covered facial trauma. Yes. And one of the early interactions we have is really with the ophthalmology residents because obviously any major facial trauma with any orbital involvement usually requires an ophthalmology evaluation. And I feel guilty for the amount of ophthalmology consultations I have placed over the years. <laughs> but that was really the early interaction. And I have to say it's always interesting from our background because we don't really, besides medical school ophthalmology rotations, and now you know with the plastic surgery integrated program, I'm so happy that our residents spend time with oculoplastic surgery. But our really introduction to the eye and um, you know comprehensive evaluation of the globe is fairly limited. So I found really I've learned tremendously over the years from interacting with all of you about things that we are not necessarily very well trained to do or even pick up on exams. That relationship is really a, I find it as a real asset to have because like you said, oftentimes, there may be things that can be missed and there may be things that may be overlooked and you need a keen eye that's really is well trained to pick up on these things. So the collaboration, the partnership with ophthalmology and oculoplastic surgery has been tremendous for really our patients, but also has been very helpful for us as surgeons to learn from each other. I hope this answers your question, yeah. but I, I feel more interaction is probably even better. I was even telling the residents the other day, maybe a good idea for them to spend more time towards the end of their residency when they're more experienced and they have more skill set to really spend more time with oculoplastic surgery in addition to their early rotations because you know you can pick up on a lot of things as an early resident but then once you've had the experience the exposure I do feel spending that little bit more extra time at the end can be really really helpful mm-hmm. as a matter of fact we recently published a paper together on the importance of including that multidisciplinary evaluation of orbital fracture by a multidisciplinary team because we found in that paper that many of the injuries have eye injuries as well Mm -hmm. and that need to be managed both medically and surgically and these will be missed or not properly managed if the entire team is not included yeah i completely agree i think that the collaboration and working together is so important i feel like a, a question we often get is with these orbital fractures you know do they need an eye exam does ophthalmology need to see them does an oculoplastic surgeon need to fix them? If you're in the community, you know, is it okay to let OMFS fix this or facial plastic surgery fix this orbital floor? What do you think just overall the level of comfort is for fixing floor, medial wall fractures, eyelid approaches, those those types of things by non-oculoplastic surgeons? That's a really good question. I think the amount of training every program has can vary. You know, some yeah. programs, as you know, you, you train in New York City and if you train in a big academic hospital with a level one trauma center, you're probably going to have the exposure. And then, you know, it's your comfort zone. Certainly, the margin of error when you're fixing or taking care of orbital fractures can be fairly narrow in restoring the volume, preventing some of the complications of over-contoured implants or 
under reduced fractures, mm-hmm. and we've all seen some of these. We've uh, seen these complications both all of these come exactly in, in we our see clinic. The time. So I think you know getting it right the first time is so key. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things really we have been doing with three D printing and three and virtual planning here is to get it right the first time. Mm-hmm. So. I think if the surgeon has the comfort and the experience, certainly a lot of the specialties overlap. <laughs> but the hope is if they don't, that this is be referred to a tertiary care center where they can handle these type of injuries. I love the 3D work that you've done. You've published a ton on the use of 3D imaging technology for aesthetic surgery, for surgical planning, for teaching, great outcomes. And you've done a ton of work with 3D modeling here. Talk us through what 3D modeling even means, how you use it in your practice. We have a case where we just used it, and really, I am a total convert. I have to admit, we went into this case. We had a, a big orbital fracture we were doing together. There was some frontal sinus involvement, and I, we were doing it together. But the orbital component, I never would have considered getting 3D modeling. And I came to the OR. You had this beautiful 3D model made that had the fractures color-coded and you you have some models here and we have this is a podcast but the video will also be on youtube so we can show some of these models but it color codes the fractures and i really was a total convert i thought oh this is such overkill we didn't need this in this case and then I'm not joking, it was essential to the success of the surgery. We were able to identify the bone fragments based on the model and I kept referring back to the model and if we didn't have it, it would have been so much harder. So really, that changed how I thought about it. It's not just for super complex cases. I found a use for it in a what I would otherwise call relatively routine, you know, big fracture case. With that, tell us how you use 3D modeling and how you see it being used in practice. Yeah, no, we're really lucky to have probably the world's best hospital-based 3D printing program uh, with you know amazing colleagues in radiology like Dr. Jay Morris and his lab that help us with these cases. So for example, a basic case would be an orbital blowout fracture. And I found that from taking care of some of these injuries over the years, really every orbit is almost like a fingerprint, is unique. Mm-hmm. We don't necessarily have the same anatomy. The topography of the floor can be fairly variable, even though we have a lot of custom plates that are pre-bent, but they don't really represent the true anatomy for that specific patient. And as you know, it's critical to get the volume right, because if you don't get the volume right, you will develop some of these issues in ophthalmos, hypoglobus, where you can have some double vision issues. So this is a case where the blue is the mirror image, normal side onto the side that is fractured. So now I have a map of what the normal should be. So we sterilize a model like this one and take it to the operating room where we can actually restore the volume exactly to the other side that is normal. We've also have enough of these models that we can even print a normalized one based on the previous scans if we don't if both sides let's say are fractured mm-hmm. these are more complicated cases but I use this model to bend the plate exactly to the normal side That's so um, instead of putting the implant through the small incision and seeing how it fits I made sure that it fits perfectly on the model and usually very little corrections needed you just place it inside the defect and it takes care of it. Other examples, like you mentioned, education. So this model, actually with one of your partners, Dr. Wagner, we thought about educational models. So this has the orbit, orbital anatomy, the dimensions and the distances from the rim to the optic nerve, which is which for us, 
non-ophthalmologist is Big our scary part is, yes. is is god forbid blindness for the patient mm-hmm. and we we discuss risks with every patient that you're trying to fix a fracture but then some of the side effects of the surgery or the complications can be blindness so uh, just to show the residents the distances and the safe distances to be aware of when they're dissecting some of the vascular structures so these models are reproducible they can be made for residency programs our residents and fellows to really look at outside of the operating room really familiarize themselves sort of in the lab or in their own time before we're doing the surgery itself. Mm -hmm. They're so beautiful. I have spent so much time kind of meditating on a skull and facial anatomy is so complex. And so with these 3D models that have the nerve and the vasculature in there too, it's so helpful. It really turns it into more of kind of a living piece that you could study instead of just a bony this even has the lacrimal sac, and you can see it going through the nasal lacrimal duct. It's just outstanding. These are beautiful. And it has the distances printed. So it has the millimeter distance actually printed on the 3D model, and the labeling right printed on the model is beautiful. Really, really cool for education. I love it. Yeah, phenomenal job, really, by the 3D lab. And this is a another case that uh, you were mentioned about the color coding. So a zygomatic complex fracture with an orbital floor component where you can see the different colors of the fragments. Mm-hmm. So in this case, kind of similar to the case we did, we have the uh, trauma, the actual fracture, and then we have the plan. So this plan is actually uh, perfected on a virtual platform with a program here. So we also mirror image right to left to make sure we're making what's fractured normal Mm -hmm. and get the symmetry right. So then we can print this model once we fix it virtually and take to the operating room and we usually have the plates pre-bent. It saves us time. It allows me to teach the residents how to bend the plates outside of the mm-hmm. rigor and the time constraint of the operating room. And also, we can use the plates as guides because now I put the plate, if it doesn't fit, it means the fracture is not in the right location. Mm-hmm. So it's just a different way to thinking about trauma care. But I find it really helpful. And you know, even in experienced hands, if you're off by five millimeters, it's a big deal. It could mean another surgery for the patient, mm-hmm. time off, and form and function, very critical for the eye and for the eyelids. And like you said, we really get one great shot to fix it. And anytime you're going in for a reoperation, the results are, are much more difficult to have a good result. And then there's more complications, lid malposition, enophthalmus, fat atrophy, other things that you're dealing with secondarily, more scarring, more bleeding, yeah. it's less predictable. And so getting it right the first time, I think, is a huge point that you make that it is so important. Absolutely. And, you know, I feel privileged to having colleagues like you and Dr. Wagner and Dr. Bradley here. And we're not shy about asking you guys for help because I feel in complex cases where we feel the best outcome for the patient comes from the collaboration. I think we're really at a unique environment where we have this sort of spirit where it may not be possible sometimes from logistical standpoints to have multi-specialties be present at the same time because everybody's busy and you may not be at the same hospital. But I feel here for our patients, we are really privileged to be able to offer true multidisciplinary care when we need it. Mm-hmm. There have been cases where have been fairly significant trauma that Dr. Bradley and I took care of literally overnight. We spent the entire night to help that patient with severe trauma. And it was critical to having her and another colleague from your department who's a retina specialist Mm -hmm. because the trauma was so severe that the retina was involved 
and there was a globe rupture, and there were fractures as well, and soft tissue injuries. So it's really required the input of all the specialties to have the best outcome for the patient. So I think knowing when to ask for sort of help or collaboration and knowing your limits as well, and this really goes for a lot of other things we do. I feel the Mayo Clinic model kind of really fosters that sort of spirit of collaboration, and I feel privileged to be able to to ask you for involvement in some of those cases because I do feel the patient eventually benefits the most. Yeah, we are better together for sure. That's wonderful. I completely agree. I feel so lucky to get to work with you and on these complex cases that maybe I could muddle through them on my own, but it'd be much better if you were there. <laughs> and we learn from each other. Exactly. I feel every it case makes also, stronger. We, we get better. We see things that we may not have seen otherwise mm-hmm. and definitely uh, learned a lot from you and your other colleagues over the years. So maybe if I wasn't a plastic surgeon, I'd be an oculoplastic surgeon yes. because I truly have an interest in this area. But uh, I think it's been really wonderful to work with you. Yeah, well, we'd be happy to have you. You can be an honorary oculoplastic surgeon. Thank you. Well, you've created community here in the operating room. I want to switch gears and talk about this fitness community that you've created, which I think is so important to talk about. And I hope people are interested in this because I think it's really important. But you're a very busy surgeon, and you prioritize your health and wellness. You're in this 5 a.m. fitness club, this workout club, and it's such a cool origin story. So tell us about how you got involved with fitness. Talk about the importance of fitness as a surgeon, how you do it, how you fit it in, your advice to other surgeons, like give us the whole rundown. Thank you. So just just for the, to be clear, I was never the resident that really would be up at 4 a.m. and work out before the rounds. I wish I did. Uh, there were actually residents in my residency in Boston who did that, and I was I was really amazed how they did it. It's really something that built over the years. As you know, we all get busy. And you certainly, once you push into your uh, 30s and 40s, you realize that surgery is very physical mm-hmm. as a specialty by itself, uh, strain on our necks, on our backs. A posture may not be the best. And sometimes you have to be in these awkward postures to be able to see better and really to be able to help the patient. So in a sense, our bodies are constantly at this struggle with the posture that we we have in the operating room and it's also physical you know you're up on your feet you know hours many hours in a day and you need to do something to counterbalance that and i felt it uh, a couple of years ago where you know my fitness level was not the best i had some sports injuries as well and really i also preach wellness to my patients and i felt that uh, leading by example it has to be key for my relationship with my patients. If I am preaching a healthy diet to be fit and to be ready for surgery, um, I feel like I can't be doing that as a surgeon and not be able to do that myself. So a couple of years ago, I read a couple of books on, on diet and, and health and really was influenced by them. And really it was during the pandemic that this sort of new phase of my life started with the 5 a.m. club and to really feel like regain sort of my fitness state that I was in during med school. And I've always has, had interest in sports, but you know, definitely med school and residency can really take that away from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get busy. So then you have family and how do you juggle family with your fitness? And we decided after doing it for some time after work, that is probably best for us and the family to do it in the morning when the kids haven't, they're not awake yet and we can just sort of sneak in that one hour before work. Mm-hmm. And so now we're not taking time from the family at night or in the evening. So we started just me and a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Kendall Lee, who's a neurosurgeon here. And then slowly the group really expanded and now we're about seven or eight people. 
and keeps growing. And it's uh, 5 a.m. or 5.30, at least two or three times a day. And a week. A we- uh, yeah. Sorry, a week. <laughs> <laughs> it's been great. And I can tell you, beyond the physical benefits of it, it's been a tremendous uh, mental booster for all of us. And mm-hmm. everybody in the group really attests to that, is uh, the conversations, talking about life. And sometimes we talk about some really interesting topics, uh, books we're reading, uh, recent travels. So it's become more of a really a true camaraderie, friendship, and different people from different walks of lives. Not everybody's a physician on the group. We have friends in finance, scientists, and all different specialties. And really having that shared sort of interest in fitness and wellness has been tremendous. So it really helped me mentally to be also resilient because when I, I'm done with the workout, I feel I can pretty much take on anything that day. And I used to be afraid of working out when I have a very big surgical day ahead of me. But now actually it's the opposite. When I have a big day ahead of me, that's when I want to work out because I feel that my, my energy level is actually much higher and the day goes by smoother and, and just generally happier for me and everyone else. And even my OR staff actually noticed that. So I think it's been really a tremendous transformation for me and the, the other folks in the group can attest to it as well. So once it's a month, it's a habit. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes part of your life. And now then it becomes a necessity, actually. So if we don't hit the gym at least two or three times a week, something is wrong. We need that. And I think being part of the group really helped us you know, stay honest because then you have the accountability that you, are, you have friends waiting for you at the gym. Having a trainer, then that was the addition. Chris Zing is a phenomenal trainer, and he kept us in line. And we look at the kind of exercises we do now compared to two or three years ago when we started. I mean, it's night and day. And so it really helped us a lot. I think there's something magical to really exercising. We all know the benefits of it for our patients, right? Pre-op and post-op, and also benefit not just from you know cardiovascular health and diabetes risk and all these things, but also I think mentally it's, it's really tremendous. So I highly recommend it. Get a group. Some people are very disciplined. They can do it at home. Mm-hmm. Some people have their programs on their phones. Uh, they have you know, personal coaches. So everyone has their different style. But at the end of the day, I think the end result is, is the same. I love everything about this. Thank you so much for sharing. What an inspiration. And I hope that little fitness ophthalmology groups will pop up across the world because of this. You've inspired us all. But I really love how it's become a friendship, a bonding, and a community kind of activity for you because we know that's so important for wellness too, having that sense of belonging and community. And you're right, you can work out with an app at home alone in your basement, and I think that's what we all do because we're really busy. If we're committed to our health, it's like, well, I work out alone. But to have a group where you talk about life, you talk about books, and, and you hold each other accountable, like that I think really contributes to wellness in another sense. So it's just exponential. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, we met some really great, great people at the gym that are not physicians and they, they, they don't work at the clinic, but they reside in this community. And if it wasn't for that, I would not have met them. And um, sometimes we go play golf together. It's really oh, amazing. Like you said, a community has, mm-hmm. you know, was formed from this activity. So no, it's been really nice to meet new people. And definitely this would have been missed if I didn't go to that specific gym or right. <laughs> worked out by myself. So you're absolutely right. I think the group experience is key and I enjoy it more. I'm more of a group person, be with other people, work out with them mm-hmm. than 
just do it on my own because I think I find more pleasure in doing that. So there's more joy, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's really fun. Tell me about your workout. Are you lifting heavy weights? Are you doing cardio type things? Do you worry about being sore in the OR? Like, what about your hands? You know, these are all things I've thought about. I had a little stint where I was doing a lot of um, boxing and then I was really worried about my hands. Yeah. Didn't want to be punching things. So I kind of stopped that. And then sometimes my arms are really sore. I think, oh man, it's going to be hard in the OR today. (laughs) Absolutely. In the beginning, definitely we had some sore days, uh, especially if you have some leg and thigh exercises that you're not used to. A leg day will Uh, kill you. (laughs) Definitely. uh, If you have a long day in the OR. From a surgeon perspective, I avoid high impact for the wrists and the uh, and the hands, so uh, no boxing uh, yeah. for us. There is a combination of core training, which really, you know, we don't like to do these things. So lots of ab work, lots of kettlebells. Oh, it's so lots, good. Lots for of your hamstrings, and which you know, I mean, I've, I don't remember doing hamstrings ever in my life. Oh. But this was really key, and you can feel your core more engaged, mm-hmm. and you can feel your posture is better. Mm-hmm. And even some of my OR nurses used to comment on my bath posture standing up, and uh, I haven't heard those comments recently. Wow. So I think it really helps you. So core strength, some weights, and some cardio. Mm-hmm. It's about an hour long, and the trainer really keeps track of what we're doing and mm-hmm. keeps kind of notching it up a bit every time. So. All in all, we're doing better every few months than we did before. And uh, we actually, we try to celebrate that as a team. So we try to do something uh, as long as we're doing this uh, at least once a year to celebrate the the 5 a.m. club. Uh, So (laughs) it's our second year anniversary now this June. And uh, today we took a group picture and everybody was really proud that we've, we've been doing this for two years. That's so outstanding. Congratulations to the 5 a.m. club. I love it. Well, Basil, you, you, I think bring out the best in all the teams that you're on. You inspire us to be better surgeons, to take better care of ourselves. It's an honor to work with you. Thank you for just giving this insight. I think ophthalmologists and surgeons can can learn a lot from what you've incorporated into your practice and your journey. So thank you so much. This was really wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. You can find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website. Thank you for listening, and we definitely look forward to sharing more 